electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer at the New York Stock Exchange. David Faber's in Houston with ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods exclusively. We'll hear from him in a couple of minutes. In the meantime, the back and forth continues as we kick off the month of December. Futures are green. ADP comes in strong. Powell day two on the hill. Got oil back to 68 as the OPEC plus technical meeting begins. Speaking of crude, a lot of attention on the complex this morning, and that's a good day to have you down there. Yeah, uh, it is, in fact, uh, uh, an interesting day to have that conversation with Darren Woods, of course, the chairman and CEO of ExxonMobil, who will be joining us shortly from the Houston campus here of the company, as you say, Carl. Uh, a lot of volatility in oil prices just this week. Of course, we'll also be talking about news that released, was released uh, a few, a couple hours ago or, or so uh, from the company, in which it uh, codified many of the targets that it shared during its last quarterly earnings report, namely uh, CapEx spending as it sees for the next few years, how much money, $15 billion that it's going to be spending uh, on its various initiatives under sort of greenhouse gas emission reduction projects. Uh, and so plenty of things to talk with him about and hopefully get into some of the specifics there. As you look, Exxon shares perhaps going to rebound a bit, maybe some of that due to this board signed off on plan that we have this morning from the company, but as well, uh, Jim, also probably simply a relief rally a bit from what has been uh, well, you can see what's happened over the last uh, last week as oil prices have moved uh, quite sharply, haven't they? Yes, and uh, Chevron is up a similar amount. My uh, Chapel Trust bought some and talked about it uh, in my uh, club bulletins. I might talk about it also on, uh, on Scott Wapner's show today at halftime. But, David, I think that what I really need you to give me is the difference between what Mike Worth did at Chevron and uh, what's going on with Darren Woods. Because I go over Darren Woods, he does not seem to be committing to new projects that could be revenue generating. He just seems to be committing to cleaner skies. Is that an accurate read? I'm not sure that that is the case. I mean, they have cited potential for double-digit returns from the investments that they'll be making. Obviously, the key for them, as you well know, and that's the case for Chevron to a certain extent, is carbon capture and what that is going to represent, Jim. But we will have that discussion, and I will certainly try to get you that answer. Yeah, please do, because I have to think that this new board, which I know you're going to address, is perhaps the most progressive board, and a reason, again, that I have said it's okay to own oil stocks again. And David, you know people on this board. They seem to be, uh, this is not a passive board by any means, right? No. I think that is a fair point. This is an aggressive board. Certainly, we do know some of the members of it. Our former CFO at Comcast, certainly Mike Angelakis, and a lot of different members of that board. And, Carl, that's one reason why this is newsworthy this morning in terms of the board saying, hey, we stand behind the numbers that management is sharing. 
Uh, mean, meantime, Goldman's out uh, trying to defend their target of 85 on crude. Uh, Jim, uh, Jeff Curry's been bullish for oh. a while. His <laughs> basic point is the market's pricing in about a $7 billion drop uh, per day in demand, which he says would be like, say, half of the original COVID lockdown of March of uh, Q2 of last year. Well, many a time in my 40-year investment career, I have made calls, and those calls have been wrong. And what I like to do is own them, all right? If you want to look at the top of oil, it was the $100 call from this man. Now, this man is incredibly nice, known for long time. That's all I have to say. <laughs> do you think the market's overreacted, thin liquidity? That's Yeah, the, Friday's left. trading was yeah. just absurd. I mean, you know, look, you're, you can come in there. Remember, oil traded a negative price. That would have been a good time to buy. And I, I think that what we've seen is uh, a peak. And I've been saying that for some time. And the peak comes from the fact that there was financial buyers at 80. It was not the actual demand. The actual demand, I think, is between 60 and 70, uh, where Chevron makes good money. Uh, where I'd like to know from David whether Exxon makes good money. But uh, Jeff Curry, uh, again, I just think when you make a call that gets everyone all bulled up to go to 100, and then you come back with the call today, it would have been fantastic to do what I do for the investment club, which say, so far I'm wrong. But, and therefore people could say, well, well, yes. Wrong? Well, um, speaking of uh, the broader market, Jim, you did say on Monday that you didn't trust the bounce. And that was a pretty good tip. Yeah, I, I think that today's much more of a, a realistic view because we actually have some earnings. I, I, obviously, I think Salesforce is a big focus because I spoke to Mark Benioff last night and Brett Taylor, uh, the new co-CEOs. And then I spoke to them again and then again and then finally again. And I am convinced that the so-called downbeat forecast is is not worth a, a bucket of spit. Uh, it, that was what the vice president was worth a few years ago. Actually, about 60 years ago, 70 years ago. So I, I am, you know, those who are saying, you know what, I'm going to sell Salesforce because the forecast is not that bullish. I think you should look at the previous forecast, which was so wrong. Uh, and it's almost like a Netflix situation where the forecast is, well, let's just uh, put our fingers in the air. And, and there was a currency issue and there was a growing pains issue with MuleSoft, which did th- uh, throw me. But Slack is awesome. And the slack buy may prove to be unbelievable. There's some people I've been dealing with who say, listen, all of, of Benioff's growth is to buy a company. Well, you know what? Well, you know what he would say? My growth is both organic and inorganic, meaning the buy, because that's how you have to stay ahead of the posse. The numbers were extraordinary there. They're still growing at north of 20 percent for a gigantic company. So I, you know, my advice to people is that if you really don't trust Mark here after the stock where I recommended it eight, uh, and think that Mark has, frankly, uh, lost his touch because he has Brett Taylor in. Yep. Oh, please. And Brett, by the way, is a killer. Uh, it ver- ver- He's a killer. Ver- yes. I mean, very- the other day he killed uh, Dorsey. He's a twice killer. <laughs> Imagine a guy. What a week he's at. He becomes the chairman yes. of Twitter yes. and then the co-CEO. I mean, fortunately, there's like seven Brett Taylors, I guess. <laughs> he is so mild-mannered, but that is all velvet. That's a velvet fist there with that guy. <laughs> Uh, they're obviously pretty tight, uh, judging from their Twitter uh, uh, back yeah, and forth. Yeah. Uh, but it's Salesforce is going to take a bit off of the Dow, even with futures strong. Here's what uh, Taylor and Benioff did tell Jim last night. $26.4 billion, uh, for this fiscal year that we're finishing, fiscal year 22. And Jim, we gave guidance that for next year, we're exiting the $20 billions and we're going to $31.8 billion. So we only spent two years in the $20 billion. So... This is a very fast-growing business. 
You think this can give co-CEOs a good name, that, that working relationship? Well, they had one previously there, Keith Block, and it didn't work. As much as I love Keith, Keith was from Oracle, came in. I thought he was sensational. Uh, I still think, of course, he's sensational. He's a great guy. Uh, it's basically, yeah, he's a Patriot fan. That's a big mistake, although they may go far. Uh, I do think that, that Mark had in his book a very definitive reason why he wanted to have a co-CEO. He likes to take some time off to recharge. And you need a co-CEO to do that. He's also an inside guy. Uh, Brett is a, Brett closes, let's put it this way. Mark opens, Brett closes. And I think that's a fabulous co-CEO role. Uh, remember, Brett's from, from Google and Facebook. Those are pretty heavyweight uh, pedigrees. Yeah. Um, we were reflecting on the month of November uh, today. And among those that were down 20 to 30% for the month, there's some big names. Oh, in did tech. you see that list? Zoom, Roku, Hood, Penn, uh, PayPal, Baba. You think December's going to be different for... Yes. You do? Yes. And I'm doing my outlook soon for uh, the investment club. People should sign up because it's going to be pretty radical. I got a surprise guest. But I would say that a bounce back in PayPal, I had Dan Shulman. I don't know if you have tape from Dan Shulman. I, I Dan Shulman, he took me aside from, uh, from PayPal. And basically said, this is it, line in the sand. Stock's not going lower. We've got unbelievable numbers coming. We're bigger and buy now, pay later than a firm. He's tired of it. Now, the, the, time I've, the times, and this is a stock I've been recommending since 45. The times I've seen Dan tired of the selling, uh, it was wrong to keep selling. And I don't think this time is going to be any different at all. A buy now, pay later was up fivefold, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's bigger, than, he's bigger than a firm in buy now, pay later. And by the way, he was not willing to give away his company to get more from uh, Amazon. I mean, Amazon, a firm did a deal where Amazon got a lot of stock. I, I think that, did he consider Pinterest? He considers a lot of things. And I don't think Pinterest, I think Pinterest, that story was leaked. It was not what Dan wanted because Dan just wasn't really that focused on it. What Dan is focused on is winning. And he is a guy that you don't want to bet against. And yet many people are betting against him. Hey, they're betting against MasterCard, too. They announced an $8 billion buyback. uh, And the Div Hike. Yeah, Capital One got recommended today. The credit card revenge moment is now. David, you said you wanted to hear what Shulman would say. I did, and I'm interested to see what exactly it is he did say, Jim, that gives you the confidence that uh, the, the stock is not going lower. You've just said you have okay, confidence. I think that's a great question. But what is it I that he that, actually shared that makes you confident? Okay, two things. One is he shared that the growth rate after we get rid of uh, we, after I, my trust owns it, after PayPal gets rid of the last of the eBay uh, overhang, which is so tough to predict because it, it's obvious that eBay's not sharing anything with Dan. But after they get rid of that, it's only 2% of their business. That's going to be good. Monetization of Venmo. David, Venmo is a powerful concept. And by the way, if I think, I would tell you that I think Dan's next move might be in the stock market. What do you mean? Well, I think that he could offer a wallet that includes everything, crypto, stocks, whatever he wants. Dan, if the world is Dan's oyster, he's got $5 billion in cash. He's got a company, David, that has tremendous plus 20% growth. And there's no respect being given to that company right now or what Dan Shulman has accomplished. That's a big mistake. Remember when Wells was going to destroy PayPal? Remember when J.P. Morgan was going to destroy PayPal? Remember all these people were going to destroy PayPal, David? Did they? No. Did they? 
Thank you. I, I didn't know whether it was a delay or whether you were just <laughs> completely dissing me and putting me down like, you know, a dead dog or something. <laughs> when we come back, uh, David's exclusive with uh, ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods. We'll talk about oil prices, CapEx, emission reductions, the board. When Squawk on the Street from the NYSE continues in a moment. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber on the Houston campus of ExxonMobil, joined now by the company's chairman and CEO, Darren Woods. A nice background behind you, by the way. I'm told, Darren, it's the drilling fluids analysis that's going on. There's some people actually working on that. Important part of the business, figuring out new fluids that will actually help, obviously, optimize the drilling process. Not what we're here to talk about today, though, uh, but very glad that we could join you. Um, we are here to talk about the release out this morning in which, you know, you codify many of the targets that you shared to a certain extent during your last uh, quarter. So what is different about today in terms of why people should think about these numbers again if they already sort of saw you talk about them a few weeks back? Yeah, well, let me just extend my welcome. Glad to have you here, David, and glad to share the, the, the view of the lab and some of the discussions and things that we're doing there. Uh, with respect to the release today, what we did in our third quarter earnings call in October is we had just had a preliminary review with the board, shared some of the perspective of the things the board was looking at as part of our plan. In November, we finalized that plan. And then this release uh, basically puts in a lot more detail behind the initial numbers that we shared in October. And it's a plan, frankly, that we're very, very proud of. If you think back in 2018, we set some fairly aggressive targets for 2025 to double earnings and cash flow. Pandemic got in the way of that and obviously set those plans back. This plan basically achieves doubling the earnings uh, by 2025 back on track, nearly doubles cash flow, and by 2027, basically double earnings and cash flow very soundly. So very proud of the progress that we've made despite the setback of the pandemic. Yeah, uh, a lot of focus is also going to be on the $15 billion number. Again, a number that we had seen previously, but a bit more detail behind it as well. Uh, you know, you're talking about 15 billion on greenhouse gas emission reduction products over the next six years. Uh, there are those who want to know What's the return going to look like on that expenditure? And, and how are you going to go about spending it? Yeah, so it's a mix. And what we've tried to do here, and I think one of the, the um, things the board has brought to this year's plan in the discussion is challenges to take a lead in how ExxonMobil can help society address this challenge of reducing emissions. 
That portfolio of $15 billion includes projects that today generate good returns with existing policy. There are other aspects of uh, that portfolio where we are developing projects, seeding projects, large-scale projects, and anticipation of policy. And trying to develop those projects in a way that uh, can inform policymakers to help them think about how best to shape policy. So we'll be an example of that, Darren. So the Houston, the Houston Hub that we proposed is a great example of that, where we've got 11 companies collaborating to make a significant step change in emissions, uh, 50 million tons per annum by 2030, 100 million tons per annum by 2040, uh, very high concentrations of CO2, uh, and do that at a cost which is cheaper than essentially any other programs or initiatives that the government's currently funding. So that's a great example, but it needs some policy to help support that project. What's the policy then? So you need, you need policy, which uh, frankly the infrastructure bill has helped with to uh, regulate pore space and allow access to pore space. We're going to need infrastructure and pipeline. We need some additional 45Q, some additional incentives for carbon reduction. That's being considered in the Build Back Better legislation. So I think there's the, you know, the, the policymakers are receptive to the ideas and the constructs that we're trying to put together to, you know, table opportunities make significant reductions in a cost-effective way. So if you see those policy changes that you're talking about, is it possible that you will choose to increase that number or is that number going to be what your shareholders should expect for the next six years? If you look at that number, uh, last year we, we more than quadrupled it and it's really a function of the organization focusing and finding the opportunities around the world. We're working with governments around the world so I would expect that if those policies come into play and provide the necessary incentives to drive that investment, you'd see that investment level go up, absolutely. And you talked about the Houston Hub, you talked about you know carbon capture, obviously. There's a lot of carbon that comes out of there. Um, but we're not in a technological place where we can actually suck it out of the air in an efficient way and just store it somewhere, are we? No, that's the holy grail. If you think about it, if you could leave the existing infrastructure in place, which is very efficient today, and find a way to extract CO2 out of the air cost-effectively, that's the holy grail because you get your cake and you eat it too. There are a lot of people working on that technology, and I think we will make advances there. But I would say you need to spend money on that technology, have some breakthroughs there, and you also need to develop a broader set of portfolios because, as you know, uh, Predicting when you're going to have a breakthrough and the magnitude of that breakthrough is often challenging So you better have a portfolio of opportunities that you're pursuing But I think direct air capture is, is an important technology you do. Well, you know when you talk about carbon <clears throat> capture Which is becoming an important component of your product portfolio for lack of a better term I mean you say unique capability that ExxonMobil has you talk about leveraging your advantage and science and technology give our viewers some sense as to what you're talking about when you say that what is it about ExxonMobil that gives you the confidence that that's where you should be focused and that that's where you can distinguish yourself as you say uh, in terms of being sort of unique so if you go back and look at our history over 135 years I mean our job has been to discover and develop hydrocarbon and then to transform that hydrocarbon into products that consumers need and to manage the impact of that hydrocarbon what we're talking about with carbon capture is just a variation on that theme of managing carbon and managing hydrocarbon molecules. And so today, we're the largest sequester of carbon in the world today. We've captured more anthropogenic uh, CO2 than any other entity in the world. And so we've got a lot of experience in that space. It's going to require large-scale projects, which we have an expertise in. It's going to be needed all around the world where we have the relationships with governments and have done that work in the past. Requires a technology and advances in technology, which is where we spend a lot of money. 
and it requires an understanding of how to integrate those projects into existing facilities, which obviously we have a very large facility um, footprint. So there's a lot of aspects of what we do today that lend itself and support uh, what we can do tomorrow with carbon capture. And the beauty of carbon capture, hydrogen and biofuels, all those um, lower emissions uh, investment opportunities draw on those same sets of skills and capabilities and in fact our competitive advantages. So as the world transitions and we have this uncertainty as to exactly when it's going to happen, we have the optionality and the flexibility to shift from the traditional investments and in where we're leveraging those skills to the alternative investments. And we can pace that as the world transitions and as we work with governments and if that accelerates faster, we can shift those resources faster. If it slows down, we can keep those resources What's balanced. What's your guess right now? You know, based on what you see right now and our ability to actually combat climate change, come to some sort of agreement, by the way, within our own country, not to mention with nations around the world, What's your best guess in terms of how that shift is going to take place and when? You know, it's, I think it's hard to predict. And that is not, uh, uh, in fact, very different than uh, what the price of crude or any of our other products is going to be very difficult to predict. So the plan is to basically build an optionality so you're prepared irrespective of what direction that goes in. It's challenging to put that policy in place. The fact of the matter is today the alternatives to replace the existing energy system are expensive and consumers will have to pay for that. We're working hard to bring that cost down. I think that's the best solution, is to invest in the technology, provide alternatives that don't require consumers to give up the standards they've become accustomed to, and don't require them to spend a lot of money. I think that's the work that has to happen, and how quickly that technology evolves to get those costs down will help drive the pace of the transition. Right. But people are gonna have to potentially be willing to spend more. What I, I, I think, you know, it, the, there will be a cost for moving to what is today a very efficient to a new alternative. The more that we do, that cost will come down, yeah. obviously, and the better the technology uh, becomes, the, that cost will come down. But that, there will be a transition cost. No you know, speaking of it. that transition, of course, we're focused on Europe to a certain extent this winter because the wind hasn't been blowing quite as hard in the North Sea. The, wind, the sun doesn't always shine. And there has been a transition that has taken place more uh, more so than here, certainly, in terms of power generation. Are you concerned at all about what you see in Europe and potentially what they're facing? Yeah, you know, I think it's, I, I am concerned, and it is this, uh, I think when you're moving from, if you think about today's global energy system, it has developed over decades, and billions of people around the world depend on it to support their modern living. And so as you transition out of that, which has to happen to get the emissions down, which I think is the right objective, you've got to be very thoughtful about how you do that, because, uh, if you, if you don't have the same availability and reliability, that will translate into people going without energy, which is absolutely critical to their standards of living. And obviously in the wintertime, that becomes very important with heat. So we're gonna have a challenge, I think. Uh, it's gonna be a function of how, how cold it gets and what the demand looks like. It's been compounded, not just by the transition and the investments in the alternatives, but coming out of the pandemic, the industry saw a tremendous uh, impact from that pandemic and the loss of, of revenue and prices being as low as they were. And so investments had to pull back. The industry didn't have the money to, to, to make the investments. That has, in a depleting business, has really constrained supply. Now the demand's picking back up again. So there's another number of dynamics that are yeah. influencing that. We gotta, get our, we gotta get through that, frankly. Uh, well, speaking of rising prices, I, I did wanna get your response to President Biden a few weeks back when he asked the Federal Trade Commission to examine oil and gas companies and their role in rising gasoline prices. There seemed to be this idea that there's potentially illegal conduct. What's your response? 
Well, I think, you know, if you go back in time in history, uh, every time we see the supply and demand balances get tight and prices rise, uh, you see similar types of investigations. Uh, I think you're going to find there's nothing, in, there's no there there. I mean, frankly, this is a commodity market. Uh, the prices are set by the amount of supply that's out there and by the amount of demand. If you restrict that supply and you don't do anything about demand, I promise you prices will go up. Can you give us any prediction on oil prices? I can't do that, David. I wish I could. <laughs> All right. And finally, though, how about cost reduction? You've taken $4.5 out in costs since, I think, 18 or maybe 19. 19 that's you have right, a $6 yeah. billion dollar target. Are you going to be able to exceed that? Absolutely. I think I've been very proud of the organization. The, the changes that we made starting in 2018 and 2019, where we changed how the organization was configured and moved to value change, have allowed us to really focus the organization on becoming more efficient, both from a capital deployment standpoint. If you look at the, the earnings and cash flow growth that I talked about, we're doing that with a lot less capital than we had before, in large part because of the productivity we're getting out of the spend. But it's also allowing us to significantly reduce our expenses, and I expect to beat the $6 billion uh, easily. All right. Uh, we'll hold you to that. Okay. And look forward to future interviews uh, as well when we discuss it. Darren, thank you for uh, you. taking time. Appreciate it. Thank you, David. It. Thanks for coming down. Sure thing. Darren was chairman and CEO of ExxonMobil. Carl, back over to you. All right, David, thanks so much. Our David Faber uh, at Exxon in Houston. Take a look at futures here as we're about four and a half minutes to the opening bell. More Squawk on the Street continues in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Time for Kramer's Mad Dash as we count down yeah. to the opening bell. First, I want to compliment David on that unbelievable interview with Dan. What a fantastic get. Also trying to figure out whether Goldman's call, oil calls from commodities or from the oil department. Uh, okay, ATT. Yesterday, conference, uh, a fellow by the name of Jeff Micklefresh, CEO of ATT, the actual division, said that they're basically not going to have as good a year as uh, last year. Uh, they can't. They can't because uh, stimulus is going to be over. Next year, they don't have that. We're not forecasting it to be as strong as it is this year. That's what drove the stock down. Uh, once again, I point out that ATT is in a huge price war with T-Mobile and with Verizon, which is one of the reasons, by the way, why Apple's so strong. They're all, the way they do a price war is to give away uh, Apple 13. Uh, so I did see you tweet yesterday, what's going on? Why the relative strength on Apple? Uh, some argued it was a new safety play. You think it's because of the support they're getting from Well, the uh, UBS Evidence Lab, whose work is, is really top notch, does say uh, that there's availability for China and availability for the United States for the most expensive ones. And that is absolutely the holy grail. When you have the expensive phones available for Christmas, that is great news. So that's percolating. Interesting, by the way, Nike's strong in China. Boeing was strong last night. Apple 
Apple Strong waiting for Starbucks. But maybe there's something going on with time that's not, not bad either. Yep. Um, we have seen some decent manufacturing activity out of China yes. last couple of days. How about that days. number? Uh, we're hoping that will continue. Look at the breadth coming in. As wow. we're back to 46.22 at the big board this morning. Uh, it is online advertising company, Innovid, celebrating its IPO at the NASDAQ Codera, gaming and sports betting operator in Latin America. Yes, um, kind of like Villanova on Friday night yes. coming. Yes. Uh, there is a piece by my friend John Ellis, who does great work with news items. Omicron may be our salvation. This is out of the uh, UCL Genetics Institute, where there are 30 Nobel laureates talking about how this is a, the highly optimistic scenario. John Hot, Jan Hatzius alluded to this, where this is a fat, this new Omicron can nudge out Delta but is not as virulent as Delta. Can you imagine that? Yeah, this was one of Goldman's four scenarios. The four, yes, the bullish scenario. Uh, in which it basically targets not the lower airway, but the higher, the higher airway. So can you imagine a more, uh, a less virulent, but more aggressive is kind of what you really would like to have, the holy grail. Uh, it's kind of like one of my doctors says to me over and over again, Dr. Lapook, I'd like to give you some COVID uh, because that's the best. Uh, give you a little light COVID, get out of it, uh, like smallpox. So this could be one of the reasons why I think that, this, this was in the uh, Telegraph, uh, that maybe people are getting more optimistic. Dr. Topol is just saying over and over again last night on, on Mad Money, it's a three-shot. She never called it a two-shot. It was always a three-shot. You get three shots, he thinks you're going to be okay. Obviously, we don't have enough out of the Netherlands, which actually has kind of an incubator going because of those two plane runs. Yep. But I do think that this Francois Ballou, director of UCLA Genetics Institute, who's completely heavyweight, is saying that, look out, this could be a, maybe a really lucky scenario. Hey, David, I wanted to ask you, because this interview that you did was so great, uh, you know Tesla's been very strong. Uh, we see some of these auto companies going up from 2 to 3, two to 3% in terms of EV. At what point does uh, it make it untenable to be an oil company because of EV? I think not for a very long time, uh, Jim. And in yeah. fact, you know, there's an argument that I think they will be making, and I think more forcefully perhaps in the weeks and months ahead, that the subsidies that are given for EV amount to a price on carbon that is far above what they would need to actually move even more aggressively in terms of carbon capture and what they could actually get returns from in that business. Uh, so, you know, yes, we are slowly but surely, thankfully, electrifying the, uh, the fleet of cars in this country and around the world, but it's going to be how many years? I mean, how many decades, right? Even at current rates, Jim, it's going to be a long time. Of course, that hasn't stopped the enthusiasm for so many of the names that our viewers are looking at right there, chief amongst them Tesla, but certainly don't want to forget Rivian at, what, over $100 billion, $107 billion market value is where I got it right now, guys. Um, not many Rivians on the road yet. Uh, meanwhile, Ford is going to present a couple times this week, both at Goldman and Credit Suisse. So we'll get some more on their EV plans. Jim, which I know you've been following closely. Yes, I mean, uh, Jim Farley is, uh, I think, basically saying, line in the sand, basically saying, well, listen, we're, uh, we are going to produce more cars. They're, they're expected to produce more cars, EV cars than, and vehicles than GM. David, when I listen to the, uh, the auto companies, they all seem determined to make it so that we, particularly in Europe, that you have basically carbon-free cars by, by uh, a huge number by 2030. So I think the automakers are very much at odds with Darren Woods right now. Yeah, you know, listen, I'm not saying it's not an important question, 
I posed it to him in the past. Uh, we didn't during this last interview in terms of what demand for gasoline will look like under that scenario in which, what, the next nine years we see this transition occur. But as he indicated, there's an ability to transition in their business to a certain extent as well as a result of those things. By the way, though, Jim, let's not forget that it's great, of course, to take carbon out of the air by no longer having gasoline-powered engines. But where's the power coming from that's electrifying all the cars still remains a key question as well. And we're going to need a lot more of it, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, look, coal is the base load of this country for a very long time. It's still very much part of the mix. Uh, Nat gets past it. Uh, but we are still in many ways, oddly, a very important coal user. Obviously, China uh, it, it has surpassed us. David, can you give me a sense of this Darren Woods versus the Darren Woods before the incredible victory by Engine One? You know, that's a great question. I think that there is a desire and willingness on the part of this company to be more uh, forthcoming and transparent. I think that's apparent, isn't it, just given how many appearances he's made in recent times and how communicative the company has been. Um, that board, as you pointed out, is, uh, is not an easy one, um, but he has indicated previously and, and, you know, that, uh, that they are making a great deal of progress and that he enjoys and, and actually relishes the challenges, so to speak, of dealing with um, the voices in a boardroom uh, and going through all the different arguments and getting to a plan that was approved by this board for spending $15 billion over the next six years, Jim. So I think that's a reflection of sort of where they are right now. But there's no doubt that there's plenty of battles to come. I'm not talking about within the board. I'm talking about actually between the company and sort of trying to achieve what it, what it says it wants to. Uh, and part of that has got to be, frankly, part of its own image, I think. You know, wouldn't you say, Jim, you know, in terms of trying to get some of the, um, the policies in place that they say they will need to spend even more to pursue even more aggressively some of the technologies that, that we've been talking about and the efforts that we've been talking about. Absolutely, David. You and I both studied John D. Rockefeller, uh, and he made the point, Darren, of talking about the long history of Exxon doing the right thing about getting carbon in the ground to the consumer. You don't invoke him easily because obviously people also think of him as, a, as a, 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 an, an antitrust nightmare. But don't you think that, that he invoked, that Darren invoked the history that Exxon is a good steward of carbon, and that that was a very big statement. I do. I do. And I think that is part of what the message that they are going to be sending even more often uh, over time, because they've got to be part of this solution, right? They've got to be, as does the entire right. industry. Um, and this transition, as you well know, is one that may intensify in terms of how quickly it's taking place. But it's hard to say. And are people going to be willing, Jim, to pay more? Are people in developing countries going to be willing to sacrifice in some way for what has already taken place for decades and decades in the developed countries? I mean, these are difficult questions to answer, but they will be key to sort of how quickly the transition happens. Well, also, I mean, you made a comment at the very beginning about the background. Where are you right now versus the uh, traditional two plants on the either side of Darren Woods? Meaning, and I don't mean to be facetious about this, Darren Woods is basically saying, listen, I am out of the office. I am here developing it. Uh, 
I don't want to read too much into the backgrounds, but David, this is a guy who I think is trying to say, listen, board to his own board. I am with you. I recognize what's changed. This man's changed, David. Wow. Uh, Jim, I think I think I hear you warming up to it. I don't know, man. What's going to happen to Chevron? Uh-oh. I am. No, no. I, Mike Worth is still number one. But the amount of money that this man is spending, David, we must note that he does not have the cash flow of Chevron. And yet he's still spending that much money. I thought it was very significant. No, although their cash flows, as, as, as you noted, have come up significantly. The cost reduction plan they put in place has been working, it would seem. And we don't hear anybody question the dividend anymore, do we, Jim? No, no. Good for them. Honestly, good for them. A lot of Americans own the stock, David. A lot of worldwide. And it was the, the yeah. great dividend. Yeah. You never got, I remember when I got much work at Goldman, they always said, buy. I tell people to buy Exxon. No one ever went wrong recommending Exxon. Uh, and there was a period where in the re- most recent times, it was a big mistake to recommend Exxon. So great interview by you. Fantastic. Uh, meanwhile, Tesla, uh, as we were just talking about, up about 2%. One of the big holders, of course, is Kathy Wood's ARC, which, oh. Jim, uh, bought a million shares of Twitter, uh, almost 850,000 shares of Hood, which is um, now at a post-IPO low as this lockup does expire. Can you imagine what Sarah, Sarah Eisen is going to do She's in gonna that start, interview? Yeah, Sarah starts with Kathy Wood on CNBC Pro yeah. in about uh, 20 minutes. Sarah's not someone who's going to say, hey, congratulations on buying Twitter. And wow, how great did what it was that you bought all these stocks going down. I can, this to be electric. And I am, I, I think Sarah is going to basically uh, get us to understand Kathy Wood's underperformance and why she keeps buying stocks and averaging down and whether that's a good plan. So, Sarah, I can't wait to watch your interview. Yeah. Of course, one of Wood's big talking points has been that inflation would begin to moderate. Yes. You got commodity baskets down 10%. Right. You got gas futures eight-month low. Baltic Dry has completely right. collaped. And yet there's uh, there's Jay Powell I talking about gonna, how things have gotten you, worse. Did you sense any dissonance between his pivot and the way these baskets have, have fallen? I think he has felt that if... if uh, if Omicron is really bad, then once again, we realize supply chain is the principal way that people raise prices these days. It's not commodity inflation. It's it's getting it's not the commodity. It's getting it to whoever it is. Uh, but you know what? I've got to tell you, the pivot that that Jay made uh, was poorly timed, I felt, because a lot of the commodities are coming down. But there's no doubt about it. Distribution hasn't gotten better. Some tried to argue he was like uh, Kaiser Soze. Uh, Mark Dow made that oh, point. Man. From from usual suspects, others said he look. He's trying to put an insurance policy behind his renomination appro- uh, confirmation. Well, I think Jay recognizes that if Omicron takes more people out of the workforce, which I don't think it will, uh, that it just means high price. And he didn't want to. He wanted to be able to say, "Look, this could happen again." But remember, he said, "Pull back a you know." Short, a couple of months. I mean, he didn't say, listen, I'm going to start selling bonds. I mean, the reaction was so extreme yesterday, but Kaiser's. So- <laughs> <laughs> thanks, I love thanks that. Thanks to Mark Dow for that one. By the way, ADP was uh, pretty strong. Yes. Not as strong as some had hoped. No. Uh, but maybe, uh, Leesman mentioned some of the high frequency. Maybe the estimate right. for Friday is a little light. We'll right. see. But why didn't Jay say, you know what? Commodity prices have come down. I kind of predicted this and it happened. He's so he's got so much humility. I'll say it for him because I like the guy so much. He was I right. remain his biggest support. Well, no, no, Lisa Leonard and then me. <laughs> That's always point too. 
Take another look here at the pre-market, or actually no longer the pre-market, the actual market. Dow's up 250, uh, 46.13. VIX is hanging out almost back below 24. And as far as bonds go, we'll check on how treasuries are faring this morning. Of course, got ADP. Uh, we're getting some uh, PMIs in a moment. ISM manufacturing at the top of the hour. There's the 10-year at 148. Don't go away. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Rick Santelli here, live from the CME HQ with breaking news, our November final read on market, M-A-R-K-I-T's manufacturing PMI. Expected to be very close to its 59.1 mid-month read, but it comes in light, 58.3, 58.3. That is the lightest read going all the way back to, wow, uh, the end of last year. The current low for this year is 58.4, and that was in October. So it is a miss. We know that many are going to question some of the recent data points in lieu of any facts that may be altered or landscapes changed due to the Omicron variant. But suffice it to say, on the surface, it definitely is a miss. Interest rates? Well, the yield curve has moved quite flat, and we continue to see more selling pressure and short-dated securities. Squawk on the Street will return after these short messages. Airlines and jet makers in the midst of their own sustainability push. Our Phil Abode joins us from Chicago's O'Hare, where he spoke with the CEO of GE Aviation a few moments ago. Morning, Phil. Good morning, Carl. Just talked with John Slattery. They're here. He's here because he's going to be on a flight with United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby promoting the use of sustainable aviation fuel. We'll talk about that in a bit, but we wanted to get his take since he talks with so many airline executives around the world about what concerns they have that Omicron, this new variant, might slow down international travel and push out aircraft orders. Here's what he had to say a little bit too early to call that but generally speaking as we talk to the airlines around the world just over the last few days they continue to feel that narrow body departures will be back to 2019 levels at the start of 2023 and that long haul wide body activity will be back to pre-covid levels still by early 2024 so the airlines continue to stick to their predictions and look i've traveled extensively north america the middle east and europe over the last few weeks the airports are safe to travel through, the layers of safety there, and of course the aircraft themselves with the HEPA filters, it's one of the safest places, it's the safest way to travel, in my opinion, and people want to travel. Obviously, GE Aviation has a vested interest in the return of not only domestic air travel, but international travel, long-haul travel. Their engine orders up 40% in the third quarter, but when it comes to increasing fuel efficiency, and cleaner burning jets, the key is sustainable aviation fuel. Right now, it is much more expensive than conventional jet fuel. It's almost three times more expensive. That cost has to come down in order for airlines to use SAF as it is referred to. Here's Slattery talking about bringing down that cost. And we do not have that uh, soundbite from John Slattery. But uh, I can tell you what he said is, look, yes, it's, it's way more expensive. Less than one-tenth of one percent of all flights right now use sustainable aviation fuel. But if there is a blended fuels credit that is approved as part of this new uh, spending package, that would go a long ways towards bringing it down. As you take a look at shares of GE, remember, GE Aviation, once they split off renewables, once they split off health care, it will be a standalone business likely in 2024. Uh, Carl, lots today on this SAF flight. G 
GE Aviation is here. We'll also talk with Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines. You do not want to miss that interview. First on CNBC interview coming up during the halftime report. Guys, back to you. Phil, is there a good way to, to put into context how much airline travel accounts for uh, global fuel uh, consumption? Oh, boy, that, that's a great question, Carl. I've never seen anything that's, you know, I've heard estimates, but clearly, and it's increasing. So while I can't answer what that percentage is, Carl, it is increasing. And there are no airlines that are planning to not increase their use of fuel over the next decade, two decades. That's why you need sustainable aviation fuel to come down in cost so it would cut emissions dramatically so that these airlines hit these targets that have been set in many cases in Europe by governments that are saying you need to be cleaner burning. Uh, Phil, fascinating. Uh, and Jim, it's uh, clearly a, good, a major contributor to, to oil use. Yes, and uh, Mike Worth is committed to uh, bringing down the cost, uh, Chevron CEO, of exactly what, what Phil was talking about, this renewable fuel. It's one of his initiatives to get the uh, carbon, more carbon-free. And I, I think it's for real, but yes, it's all cost. 100% cost. Phil, I look forward to hearing more today. That's our Phil LeBeau uh, out at O'Hare today talking about sustainable uh, sustainability in aviation. We didn't mention the Merck advisory or the FDA advisory panel decision on Merck, Jim. Uh, the vote 13 to 10 would maybe be a little bit tighter than some had envisioned. I think way too tight. And I also think we've got that 30% uh, positive. Now, look, they want to throw anything at this, throw everything at it. But I wait, uh, uh, Pfizer, now uh, uh, Borla yesterday tweeted, ready with their antiviral. And I think that their antiviral is going to be much more accurate, much better. Yeah. Your, your point about um, Topol uh, earlier and the, the optimistic view of Omicron, sort of echoed by Gottlieb this morning in that he said, I'm not convinced this is any more uh, severe or transmissible or will outcompete Delta at all. It's just no, too early to know. And the, by, by the way, the Dutch know. Dutch know they've got now a week worth of data about what happened to people on that plane. I wish they would tell us. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the fear over Omicron, I'm not going to say it's misplaced because every single one of these traits is dangerous. But we are now starting to hear people who are, are well-versed saying, don't panic on this. And I think that's the way to put it. Well, that's what BioNTech literally said. Don't freak don't, out. Don't freak don't out. Don't freak out. Well, the person who got us freaked out, and it was, boy, I tell you, Dr. Topol was very interesting. She said, he was not sure about uh, Stephane Bancel's performance, so to speak. That uh, in the morning he told Meg Terrell, looks is pretty good. And the evening he got very frightened. And that was, uh, he felt that was, let's call it inconsistent. Yeah. Hey, David, I know you followed um, Ridgeback and Merck pretty closely. Do you think the vote uh, said anything about potential efficacy or safety precautions? You know, I, I think that there's a frustration to a certain extent in terms of some of the, the dialogue that took place and Merck not perhaps uh, pushing back as hard as it might have on certain questions uh, that have been raised in the press. Listen, 50 percent uh, reduction hospitalizations to 30 percent. Why did that occur? Well, you know, my understanding is they both unblinded the trial, but you had a lot more of uh, the patients then in Russia and Ukraine where this virus has been raging for a long period of time. You may have had and it was the placebo arm that actually saw the reduction in hospitalization. As well, we should point out, when it comes to deaths, that was very uh, a strong performance. And in fact, the one death in the, those who were taking Molnupiravir was not related to COVID. It was actually a death from, from cancer. So um, overall, uh, and, and by the way, another question was, uh, will, you know, will this somehow give rise to future mutations when in fact it's going to actually suppress 
future mutations. That's something we discussed yesterday, Jim. But to your point, Pfizer comes in at 89 percent with with their uh, oral antiviral. If and when it is approved, that certainly will be an important component in fighting this virus. There are a lot of drug interactions to keep in mind there, though, because you have to also take ritonavir, an HIV drug, with that. Um, but it's great, Carl, that we're going to have both of these on the market to potentially treat this virus. Yeah, can't come soon enough. That's for sure. Let's get to Jim and stop trading. Well, I, I've got to tell you this. Micron's talking. The numbers, it sounds like things are good. Uh, I, the semiconductors remain the brightest spot of, of this market. Uh, I, had to, I have to say that it's very difficult to hit a market that's led by semis because they are now industrial, intellectual property, so many things. So I like a market that's led by I, I'm starting to think Santa Claus rally. <laughs> led by semis. Led by semis. Really? Yeah, I'll have that on tonight. Great prediction by help by Larry Williams, who I think is the preeminent technician of our day. So uh, we've been waiting, and this Omicron information all seems very positive. I don't know, Carl. It does seem like, once again, we hit some level of fear Friday that we are. Uh, then we tested yesterday. Uh, it was ugly, yep. and I like it. I like it. I got a company on man tonight, uh, which is just so much fun. Unity Software. It is another. It's Omniverse. With John Riccatello, member from EA, he is just so smart. Uh, Karuna, I'm doing some mental health work today. It's a, doing some mental health work tonight, by the way, with Larry Vossity and, uh, and, and with Ken Langone and a terrific Kayla. Uh, look, mental health, still hard to crack. Schizophrenia, hard to crack. We must never stop. Mental health awareness, uh, so important. That's and good work. I, you know, I, I, don't, I never mind saying that. You know, my daughter and I celebrated, we celebrated mental health. No, the mental health month, not that long. Yep. We have to be out of the closet on this stuff. We cannot talk about it. No. She does a lot of work and mentor trying to save people's lives. We're going for that. Jim, we'll see you tonight. Yeah. Uh, Mad Money, 6 p.m. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.